It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Monday, January 11, 2021. On today's episode, a special live presentation. This is Dr. Joe Schwartz from the McGill Office for Science and Society. Dr. Joe is going to be speaking all about science in uh, some of your favorite mystery stories, in particular, Sherlock Holmes. So, as you heard, we're going to talk about crime, and of course... You mentioned crime and literature and Sherlock Holmes immediately pops into your head, as does the deerstalker hat and the Beerschaum pipe. You know what? Tell you something interesting. In none of the Sherlock Holmes stories does Conan Doyle ever describe Holmes as smoking this kind of pipe or wearing a deerstalker hat. That always came from the artist's imagination who illustrated the stories. Okay, we'll get back to that, but let's start talking about science, crime, and literature. It was a dark and cold night, and a crime was committed, and the detectives were on the scene. Who did it? Was it the butler? It almost never is in the stories. But for sure, thinking about who may have done it is a gripping experience. And we all like crime stories because it's like a puzzle. You want to figure out who did it. And there are so many great stories out there. I wish we could talk about all of them. But uh, we'll talk about some of the famous ones. Obviously, Sherlock Holmes. We will talk about uh, Dorothy Sayers, great English writer, Agatha Christie. Uh, So I've just selected a few that I I think are of, uh, of interest especially the ones that somehow involve chemistry and involve poisons, because these have some really interesting features. And of course, we always ask the question, could it really happen in real life? So we'll try to analyze some of these stories. And uh, some of them really could happen. But you know what? Don't tell anyone, because some of these poisonings could be carried out in the real world. Who do we start with? Obviously, Sherlock Holmes, the most recognizable character in English literature, in any kind of English literature. All you have to do is show a silhouette and immediately everyone recognizes this as uh, as Sherlock Holmes. What a fascinating character he is. It was a cold and foggy night in London when Holmes awoke Watson with the famous battle cry The game is afoot. And off they went after the game. They would march out onto Baker Street and begin one of their many adventures. 60 short stories written by Conan Doyle and four novels. Not all of them of equal quality, but most of them really very, very good. And of course, today, Sherlock Holmes is still revered around the world. You go to London, you get off at the Baker Street station, and you will see a silhouette of Holmes on the wall. And if you're lucky enough, and you come up from the Baker Street subway station, the underground, you may meet the man himself. And if you are really lucky, he'll invite you over to 221B Baker Street and show you around. And if you ever get a chance to go to London, if we ever get the chance to go anywhere again. If you get the chance to go to London, do not miss this. 221B Baker Street is the Sherlock Holmes Museum. 221B, of course, was his famous address in the stories. And uh, it is really a neat place. You go inside, you can sit in Sherlock Holmes' chair in uh, in his sitting room, and then you can move over and sit in Dr. Watson's chair and look all around because everything there is displayed as it is in the stories. You look over in the corner of the room and there is his chemical table with his flasks and his test tubes and his chemicals. And the only thing missing is the odor of all these chemicals, which is described in the stories. And there standing by, of course, is his famous uh, violin. You can uh, go downstairs into the gift shop and buy all kinds of fascinating souvenirs. And these are not your schlocky kind of souvenirs. 
These are all really nice, really well made. For example, this uh, chess set, where on one side the king is uh, Sherlock Holmes, on the other side it is his arch enemy, Professor Moriarty. All kinds of neat things. And when you visit it to 21B, you can go across the street and have a Sherlock Holmes sandwich in the Sherlock Holmes sandwich shop. And for supper, you can walk over a few blocks to the Sherlock Holmes restaurant. And here you have another interesting adventure waiting for you because here, just like in the, in the museum, his sitting room is immaculately recreated with all of the artifacts that are mentioned in the story in great detail. And uh, Sherlock Holmes officiators can just go there and look and recognize the items that are mentioned in different stories and talk about them, argue about them, etc. It is really a, a, a neat place uh, to go. And you probably will be surrounded by tourists from around the world. Interesting enough, the Japanese. Sherlock Holmes is huge in Japan, which is it's kind of difficult to understand because I'm not sure how well it translates into Japanese. But uh, you see busloads of Japanese tourists uh, in front of Sherlock Holmes Museum. And when you go to the Sherlock Holmes restaurant, you're guaranteed to see a whole bunch of Orientals uh, there. There have been many actors over the years who have played Sherlock Holmes, classic actors. One of the earliest ones was Basil Rathbone. Uh, then there was Christopher Lee, both of these great British uh, actors. But uh, my favorite is Jeremy Brett. Uh, Jeremy Brett played Sherlock Holmes in the classic uh, uh, British uh, uh, series. And this was as close to the stories as you can be. They, they paid immaculate attention. And for anyone who's familiar with the stories, they will watch these episodes and, and recognize that, that it is an absolutely brilliant translation of script to, to the screen. Uh, not all of the the other Sherlock Holmes movies were are, are, are great. I mean, some of them are not really true to the story, or they even made up new stories. But the Jeremy Brett series uh, is just outstanding. You you can still see it as many of them are on YouTube, or if you're lucky enough to to subscribe to BritBox, which is a, a British uh, service, uh, it's well worth it. It's only about nine dollars a month. And you get all kinds of British uh, uh, movies, series there, and you can find the, the Jeremy Brett Sherlock Holmes uh, series there. More recently, we had uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. Uh, Benedict is a great actor, but it was kind of a, a, a bizarre Sherlock Holmes interpretation because it was brought into modern world. Uh, not not bad, not bad, but, uh, you know, a, a real Sherlock Holmes aficionados uh, like things to be true to the original story. Uh, I don't think that we really need updating. Uh, then, of course, there was Robert Downey Jr., played Sherlock Holmes in, in, in a couple of movies. And um, he was not, not really true to the stories. Uh, indeed, uh, these were very good movies. They were good adventure movies. The, the plots were pretty good. But they really didn't have to be Sherlock Holmes stories. They, these two could have been any kind of, of, of character uh, because it, it really didn't have very much to do with the, uh, the original. I mean, it's certainly still worthwhile uh, watching. The author of the Sherlock Holmes stories, of course, was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. He was a Scottish physician and uh, luckily not a very good one because it was while he waited for the patients who never came uh, that he had time to put pen to paper and write the Sherlock Holmes stories. Where did he get his ideas? Well, Dr. Joseph Bell was one of his instructors in medical school in Edinburgh, and he made a real mark on Conan Doyle because the very first class that they had in medical school was given by Joseph Bell, and he emphasized how important it was for doctors to look at patients and to be able to make observations and come to the right conclusion. And he wanted to illustrate this. So he said to the class, I want you to do exactly as I do. And he took a vial and he put his finger into the vial, which had a liquid in it, and he licked the finger 
And then he passed the vial on to the students and they passed it around and they were told to do in those pre-COVID days <laughs> to do exactly this, as the professor had, had done. And within a few minutes, some of the students were making grimaces and were retching. Why? Because they had not followed the instructions. What Joseph Bell had done with this solution that had a very bitter substance in it, quinine, he had stuck his index finger into it, but he licked his middle finger. And those students who watched carefully and made the observation, they were, of course, spared this bitter experience. And the others learned a bitter lesson. Conan Doyle really appreciated this demonstration. And Sherlock Holmes, of course, his, his real talent was making observations and coming to the right conclusion. So he was partially modeled on Dr. Joseph Bell, but not exclusively. Another model was Edgar Allan Poe's detective, Auguste Dupin, and he preceded Sherlock Holmes. In fact, uh, uh, Auguste Dupin, the creation of Edgar Allan Poe, was really the, the first, what one would call a consulting detective, who would just figure out things logically. He didn't even have to be at the scene of the crime. And there were no guns, no fights in, in, involved, just some clever thinking. The... Uh, Edgar Allan Poe's story that really uh, impressed Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was the story, story of the purloined letter. It's a story of a very important letter that is stolen, and the thief is seen walking into his apartment with this letter. And as soon as he comes out of the apartment, he's arrested. And the police go in and search for the letter because it's not on his person. And they basically tear the place apart, looking everywhere, under the mattress, under everything in the closets. They cannot find this letter. Then out of frustration, the police consult Auguste Dupin, who is a private detective and who already has a reputation for solving crime just through logical thinking. And he solves this one too. He tells the police to go back to the apartment. He tells them exactly where to look. And sure enough, there is the letter. Where did he tell them to look? He said, just look on top of the desk. Because the police, of course, had searched every hiding place, every place where they thought this letter could be secreted. But it was just out in the open. So when Dupin thought about this, thought, well, we know that the letter is in the apartment. We know that every hiding place has been searched. So therefore, it must not be hidden. And he told them to look on the desk, and there was the letter lying open face on the desk. So this really intrigued Conan Doyle. And the character of Sherlock Holmes was based on Joseph Bell and on Auguste Dupin, and was introduced to the world in Beaton's Christmas Annual in 1887. Study in Scarlet was the first Sherlock Holmes story, and it's one of the long novels. As I said, there are four novels and 60 short stories. The novels were presented in a serial form that is segment by segment in subsequent issues of, of, the, uh, of the annual in order to keep people buying, uh, buying the magazine. And uh, Sherlock Holmes was uh, uh, introduced to Dr. Watson in Study in Scarlet uh, by a, a mutual friend, young Stanford. And he knew that Holmes was looking for someone to share rooms with, and so was Watson. So he brought them together in the basement of St. Bartholomew's Hospital in London, where Holmes was carrying out some of his chemical experiments. And they had never met before. And Watson was absolutely stunned when Holmes said to him, you have been in Afghanistan, I perceive. And this was before they had spoken at all. Well, this is because he had made an observation and came to a, a conclusion. He noticed that Watson was tanned, which was very strange for any Brit at that time. So he perceived he must have been in a climate where there was a lot of sun. And at that time, Britain was fighting a war in Afghanistan. He also noticed that there was a mark of iodine on his finger, and doctors would use iodine in those days as a disinfectant. And he also noticed a bulge inside of his hat, where in those days doctors carried uh, their stethoscope. So he came to the conclusion that this must be a military doctor who had been in uh, 
Afghanistan. In a, a later story, in a scandal in Bohemia, he went on to explain how he comes to such conclusions. If a gentleman walks into my room smelling of iodoform with a black mark of nitrate of silver upon his right forefinger, bulge on the side of his top hat to show where he has secreted his stethoscope, I must be dull indeed if I do not pronounce him to be an active member of the medical profession. This encapsulates uh, what Holmes was able to do. He was able to look at a situation that everyone else sees, but observe something that other people did not uh, observe. Watson himself uh, wrote uh, quite a bit about the personal habits and knowledge of, of Watson. And in one of the stories, he describes his knowledge of literature nil, philosophy nil, astronomy nil, politics feeble. However, his knowledge of chemistry was profound. His knowledge of, uh, of crime was profound. And as he explained uh, at one time, he was only interested in things that were of value to him in his profession. And Watson was absolutely stunned when one day he learned that Holmes did not know that the moon went around the earth. And when he was told, his answer was, well, now that I know that, I will do my best to forget it because it is just taking up space in my brain uh, for something that would be more useful to me. So what an interesting character Sherlock Holmes was. One of the stories, short stories, one of my favorites is the uh, Sussex Vampire. In the story of the Sussex Vampire, uh, a lady is accused of being a vampire. Now, this is something, of course, that, that strikes Holmes as being very odd, because being a man of science, he does not believe in, in vampires. He is called into a case by a gentleman who has a young baby with his wife. His wife, uh, he met in South America, and they came back together to England. Uh, he was a, a widower, so he had a previous wife who died, and he met the new wife in South America, comes back, have a baby together. And one day, he comes home, and he finds his wife bent over the baby, apparently sucking the baby's neck with blood dripping from her lips. He can't understand what is going on. She begs him, she begs him to do nothing. Trust her to do nothing. And for once he does, but he comes home another day. And once more, he finds the same thing. And this time he's so distressed that he calls Holmes. Says, I don't understand. My wife is a vampire sucking the baby's blood. Holmes, of course, does not believe in vampires, uh, which are fictional creatures. So he thinks there must be a rational explanation for what is going on. He walks around the house, looks at some of the decorations that are on the wall, and starts asking questions. The lady of the house was from South America, and she had brought back some of her mementos from there, and Holmes is intrigued by a set of arrows that he finds hanging on the wall. And he takes a close look at these arrows, and he finds something very interesting on the tip of the arrow. He recognizes this as being a poison arrow as they used in natives used in South America. He also knows about curare, the poison that in South America natives extract from uh, a particular tree, and it is an extremely potent poison called curare. Their native language, it means he to whom it comes falls. That's what curare means. Curare is used to tip arrows to, for hunting, but of course, it can also kill humans. There's an interesting Montreal connection to this, believe it or not. Curare is a classic example of a substance that can be both a poison and a drug. In dilute solution, it is very effective <clears throat> to prevent muscular contractions. Prior to use of curare in surgery, which was introduced right here in Montreal at the old Queen Elizabeth Hospital by Dr. Harold Griffith in the 1940s as an adjunct to surgery, because surgeons don't like when they slice into the abdomen and muscles begin to quiver. So using curare prevents that. It makes their work much, uh, much easier. But of course, in higher concentrations, curare is, is a poison. Well, Holmes does end up solving this case about the poison arrow. 
It turns out that the gentleman had a son from his previous marriage, who was at this point a teenager. And he was extremely jealous of the new baby. He decided to do away with the baby. How? Because he knew that his stepmother had brought back these arrows with the poison tip. So he took these arrows and he just made a little puncture in the baby's neck when nobody was looking. But the mother saw. So she immediately started to suck out the poison, which is the reason that she had some blood on her lips. But of course, she didn't want to reveal this to her husband because she did not want to get in between the husband and the son. But eventually, Holmes figured all of this out and revealed exactly what had happened to, to the husband, and the mystery was solved. So we asked the question, what is the verdict on this? Could this really have happened? Well, it's improbable because you would have to inject just the right amount of curare in order to, to uh, have it be able to be sucked out before killing the baby. But I would not say impossible. But it's an interesting, uh, interesting story. And the public learned about the chemistry of curare. And I always look to, to mystery stories to see what can be learned and you know what information can be uh, passed on to the public that is scientifically uh, sound. Agatha Christie. Agatha Christie is, uh, uh, by volume, the greatest uh, mystery writer in, uh, in English literature. She wrote hundreds of books and stories. They've been translated into innumerable uh, languages. And her stories tend to be scientifically very sound because Agatha Christie had a background in pharmacy. She was trained as a pharmacist, so she certainly knew about drugs, which is why we should not be surprised that the story, The Mysterious Everett Styles, is actually scientifically quite accurate. So what is this story uh, about? In those days, much of pharmacy was based on natural products. This was before there were synthetic drugs. So pharmacists would, of course, dispense all kinds of natural substances. They would dispense uh, foxglove leaves, for example, for congestive heart failure, uh, obviously uh, opium for, for morphine. But one drug that was quite commonly used uh, was strychnine. Uh, strychnine uh, had uh, a variety of uses. Uh, it, it would basically stimulate the central nervous system. So it would be given to people who were, you know, feeling tired all the time, lackadaisical. And a small dose of strychnine is a central nervous system, uh, system stimulant, and it will really pep you up. But obviously, strychnine can also be a poison. It is all a question of the dose. As you know, as I've mentioned to you hundreds of times over the years, uh, the great sage Paracelsus 500 years ago introduced us to the notion uh, only the dose makes the poison. Anyway, in this case, uh, the story is about strychnine. It's a natural product. Strychnine can be found in the seeds of a fruit that grows on the Nux vomica tree, which is what you're looking at here. And here are the, the fruits that grow on that tree. And inside is a seed, looks like this. That seed contains strychnine, which can be extracted from there. And this is what was used as a drug. Of course, it was also used as a rat poison uh, back then. It was the most commonly used rat poison. Strychnine is a white crystalline uh, uh, material. And uh, when you try to uh, dissolve it in water, it dissolves quite readily. And a dilute solution of strychnine in those days was commonly used as a tonic, just kind of to pep people up, to energize them, very much like we would use coffee today. And caffeine, of course, is also a central nervous system a stimulant. Well, in the, in the mysterious affair styles, a murder is carried out using strychnine. Now, when you take strychnine and you put it into water, it dissolves very, very readily. However, if you add potassium bromide to that solution, this reacts with the strychnine to form strychnine bromide, which is not soluble. So it comes out of solution. 
And therein lies the plot of this story. An elderly lady is murdered. Why? Because she has money and the story of the will and who it's going to be left to anyway. Uh, she is murdered. Now, she has been given a tonic of strychnine that she had been taking for a long time without any problem, taking a spoonful every day. But one day she's found dead and the doctor diagnoses strychnine poisoning, which is a rather easy diagnosis because people go into convulsions and their muscles contract. But no one can understand how this happened because the strychnine solution was so dilute that it could not possibly have poisoned her. Of course, by now you can imagine what happened. The murderer snuck some potassium bromide into her bottle. So every day she was pouring off the solution. She wasn't getting virtually no strychnine. But then she got to the bottom of the bottle where this thing had precipitated. She didn't know it was not supposed to look like that. And she took a good dose of strychnine and that did her in. Interesting story. And of course, Hercule Poirot, who was Agatha Christie's uh, detective, uh, played here by David Suchet, who was excellent as Hercule Poirot. And uh, of course, uh, when we ask a question, is this possible? Absolutely, it is possible, because everything that I just told you here is perfectly correct scientifically. Strychnine is very soluble. Strychnine bromide is not. And you probably could carry out uh, a murder in this, uh, in this fashion. The Pale Horse, another interesting story by uh, Agatha Christie. And in this case, the murder weapon, once again, is a poison, thallium sulfate. Now, most people at that time would not have heard of thallium. Indeed, most people today would not know of, of thallium. But they learned about this from the story of the pale horse in a very interesting way because it had a connection to, to real life. A baby was brought uh, from the Persian Gulf to, to London, suffering from a condition that had not the doctors there had not been able to, to uh, diagnose. So the baby was brought to London. And uh, here, too, the physicians were mystified. But one nurse looked at the baby and asked the doctors, have you thought of thallium poisoning? And they thought, what on earth is this woman talking about? Of course, most of the doctors had never heard of, of thallium or, or poisoning. But she had just read the story by Agatha Christie of the pale horse, in which thallium is used as a poison. And the symptoms of poisoning were accurately described in the book. And she saw the same symptoms in the baby, the hair falling out, the discoloration of the skin, etc. And they did a test, and it turned out that it was, in fact, thallium poisoning, because thallium uh, sulfate was used at that time, again, as a rodent killer. And somehow the baby got into to, uh, a supply of it and uh, got into her mouth and uh, was made sick. So this is very interesting. Not only is that a real life connection, but here's another one, Graham Young, the so-called thallium poisoner in England. We're not sure that he learned about thallium from Agatha Christie, but there's a good chance of that. He was just in love with chemistry. He wasn't actually a criminal per se. It's just that he liked to investigate what chemicals could do to people. So he ended up poisoning members of his family, even his mother, not maliciously. He was just testing things on them. And one of these was, uh, was thallium. And he became known as the uh, thallium poisoner and became so famous that to this day, there's a wax statue of him at Madame Tussauds in, in London in the, uh, uh, in the uh, floor that is devoted to high profile criminals. And there is Graham Young, the thallium murderer. There's also a very good movie uh, about this whole episode called The Young Poisoner's uh, Handbook. And it tells the real life story of uh, Graham Young, who poisoned people around him just because he was interested in seeing what poisons do. Not because he had anything against them, not because he wanted to, to kill them. So obviously there's a component of mental uh, illness here, but it's a, a movie that is well worth uh, uh, watching. 
There are others who have, since that time, used thallium as a poison. In this case, in, in, in Florida, a man did not like the music that his neighbors were playing. And he had a lot of uh, disagreements with them. And one day he decided that he was going to put a stop to this. And uh, he saw that they always had some beverages uh, delivered to their, their house, which were left on the doorstep. And one day he took one of these soft drink bottles, opened it, put in some uh, uh, thallium nitrate, and waited to see what would happen. And indeed, one of the neighbors uh, died. The police investigated. They couldn't find anything. They went around questioning the neighbors to see if they could shed any light on this. And this guy thought that he was really smart, that he would get away with this without a problem. So when the detectives were questioning, uh, they told him what had happened, and they were questioning everyone, see if anyone knew anything. And uh, he just asked, did you ever think of, of poisoning? And of course, this uh, alerted detectives, why would this guy even bring this up? So they got a warrant, and they searched his house. And in the garage, they found a little vial, which was mostly empty, except for a few crystals. And they analyzed those crystals, and it turned out to be thallium nitrate. And uh, they brought him to trial, and he was sentenced to uh, die for murder. He thought he was so clever that he could get away with this. He was a real chemistry buff. And uh, he had this misunderstanding with the neighbors, tried to do away with them. So what is the verdict here? Obviously, it's possible because the Graham Young story really happened. The story in, in Florida uh, really happened. The baby in Persian Gulf really happened. And uh, obviously, the pale horse story of Agatha Christie's where murder is carried out with, with thallium, that is a real possibility. <clears throat> but when it comes to stories that deal with chemistry, uh, my favorite really is Dorothy Sayers, the English writer. Uh, she was a contemporary of Agatha Christie. Uh, frankly, I think her stories are better written. Uh, Agatha Christie wrote a great deal. She produced tremendous volume of, of literature. Uh, some of it very, very good. Some of it quite, uh, uh, quite passable. Uh, Dorothy Sayers' uh, stories have very intricate plots, and they are very, very well written. So you might want to take some of these out from the uh, library uh, because there's just a great deal of chemistry that is involved in the stories of, of Dorothy Sayers. Uh, her detective is Lord Peter Whimsey. He's quite different from Sherlock Holmes. Uh, he's different from Auguste Dupin. He's different from Hercule Poirot uh, because he's uh, a rich gentleman who solves crime kind of as a hobby. Not, he's not a professional consulting detective like the, the others are. He's just intrigued by strange things. And he tries and he likes to solve, uh, solve crime. Strong Poison is all about arsenic. Now, as you can imagine, uh, arsenic is a classic in scientific fictional criminal literature because it is really the typical uh, poison. Uh, arsenic compounds are available quite readily in nature. Uh, arsenic uh, compounds can be mined, and they have a long history, of course, of, of uh, acting as, uh, as a poison. In the case of, uh, of strong poison, the story is uh, about uh, two men sharing exactly the same meal. One of them dies, nothing happens to the other one. The doctors diagnose arsenic poisoning because uh, there were, uh, in the 1930s, when, when this story was written, there already were methods of detecting arsenic in someone's uh, uh, bloodstream. <clears throat> but they don't understand how this could have been uh, when they shared exactly the same meal. And indeed, analysis showed that there was arsenic present in the food. And yet, one of them died and the other one did not. Certainly, nobody suspects the 
friend that who had he had been dining with because he had also consumed the arsenic and who would consume arsenic and they thought well you know he was just lucky to have gotten away with it well no he wasn't just lucky to have gotten away with it he had made himself immune to arsenic by taking small doses of arsenic on a regular base regular times increasing the dose each time in order to develop immunity to it and of course he was the murderer he put the arsenic into the food but he survived because he had uh, developed uh, immunity very very interesting uh, uh, story and of course uh, arsenic is is fascinating in in real life as well Uh, those of you who are historians will know that uh, there's a theory uh, ben weeder of course is the one who really pushes this push this theory that Napoleon was actually uh, murdered with arsenic by the British who put it into his food. Well, indeed, it turns out that uh, uh, arsenic was found in Napoleon's hair post-mortem. That is true. And there are still locks of uh, Napoleon's hair that are around today because in those days, it was quite common that when some historical person died, they would keep souvenirs of, of their hair. So he did have arsenic. But in those days, arsenic pigments were also widely used in wallpaper. And the wallpaper that was used in his uh, in his uh, prison home uh, was made with these pigments. So it's also possible that he was poisoned by small particles of, of uh, arsenic compounds that were, were in the air. Interesting possibility. But in the case of uh, Dorothy Sayer's book, Strong Poison, developing uh, I- immunity is, is, uh, is a possibility. My favorite story, though, uh, when it really comes to any, any kind of uh, criminal story, is the documents in the case uh, by uh, Dorothy Sayers. And in order to really understand this plot, because it is really very clever and very intricate, uh, we have to learn a few things scientifically. First of all, the mushroom that you're looking at here is called Amanita muscaria. And uh, this is the mushroom that, that you often see in, in picture books and children's books, uh, you know, as, as a classic uh, mushroom because it's sort of nice red with the white spots. It is a, a poisonous mushroom uh, because it contains a number of compounds that are toxic, but especially one called muscarin. And uh, once again, obviously, only the dose makes the poison. So uh, it's all a question of how much of this mushroom one would uh, consume in order to, to have a significant effect. But it's not a whole lot. So you certainly can be poisoned uh, by this. Uh, believe it or not, uh, uh, about 20 years ago, LaRousse's uh, uh, encyclopedia, which is, was one of these one-volume encyclopedias, very thick, about, about this thick, was very popular in those you know, pre-internet days. And they had a whole entry there on mushrooms. And believe it or not, someone had mixed up the captions underneath the mushrooms. And the Amarantumuscaria uh, mushroom, it's also called fly agaric, was mislabeled. It was labeled as a safe mushroom. So they had to try to recall all of the LaRousse encyclopedias that had been sold because they were worried that someone may have misidentified a, a mushroom with that. Although it would be hard to imagine that someone went out mushroom picking, carrying this gigantic encyclopedia. Anyway, they did manage to recall a, a lot of them. All right, so our story is going to involve muscarin, which is found in, in, in the mushroom. Then we also have to learn something about symmetry and mirror images. Consider your feet, for example. They are mirror images of each other, right? They are not superimposable. You cannot put one foot on top of the other. Indeed, you cannot put one hand exactly on top of the other. They are mirror images. And the same way that our feet are mirror images of each other, our hands are mirror images of each other, there are molecules that can also be mirror images of each other. Imagine we took this molecule and we reflected it in the mirror. There it is. At first, it looks like these two are identical, right? Because they all have a a black uh, atom in the middle surrounded by green, red, blue, and white. However, if you try to superimpose one on the other 
and make the red match and the blue match, you see that the white and the green don't match. And no matter how you manipulate these, you cannot put one on top of the other. So these are what we call non-superimposable mirror images. The term that we use in chemistry for this is enantiomers. This is a much, much more complicated molecule. This is muscarin. This is the stuff that is found in the mushroom. And just like the simple molecule that I showed you, this can, in theory, exist in mirror image forms. And here you're looking at the mirror images. These are non-superimposable. You could not take the one on the right and make it line up exactly with the one on the left, the same way as, as you cannot make your right hand line up with your left hand. You can't put your right hand into a left glove, right? That's the idea that we're looking at here. Well, it turns out that the mushroom, when it naturally synthesizes this compound, muscarin, it only makes one of these two possible forms. So only one of the possible pair of enantiomers occurs naturally in this mushroom. Now we come down to the story in which a mushroom collector, someone who is an expert in, uh, in mushrooms, is found one day dead at his dining room table slumped into a stew that he had just eaten, which obviously had mushrooms in it. His son cannot understand this. He knew that his father was an expert. He would never have picked the wrong kind of mushroom. And yet the police took away the stew. They did a chemical analysis and they found muscarin the stuff that is in this poisonous mushroom in the fly agaric. And that is what killed him. So there seems to be no doubt about this. But what, how could this have been? Uh, you, do, you do not make a mistake like that when you're an expert mycologist. Mycologists are the people who are experts in fungi and like, like mushrooms. So his son just cannot understand how this happened, but he's convinced that his father could not have made uh, such a mistake. But he doesn't know what to do about it. One day, however, he is at a social gathering where he overhears a couple of chemists talking. And his ears perk up when he hears the term muscarin. So he goes over and joins the conversation and asks what they were talking about and it turns out that they're chemists, and one was talking about his graduate student who was trying to make uh, muscarin synthetically in the laboratory. Now, this, of course, really uh, uh, interests him. And he asked the chem chemist the question, oh, really, you can make this mushroom poison in the laboratory? He says, yes, yes. So then is it exactly the same? And he says, well, not, not exactly, but, but you wouldn't understand. So he says, try me. So he tells them, look, there are some molecules that can exist in mirror image forms. And generally, in nature, only one of these exists. But when we try to make this in the laboratory, a consequence of the chemical synthesis is that you get both enantiomers. So now, of course, he is really interested because he wonders if someone could have put synthetic muscarin into his father's stew. So he asked the chemist, tell me, is it possible to tell if a sample of this chemical muscarin was made in the lab or if it came from a mushroom? And the chemist says, yes, it's possible. There's an instrument we call the polarimeter. It shines light through a sample and it can tell us whether or not we have both mirror image forms or, or not. Well, luckily the police had kept a sample of the stew. So down they go to the police station, get the sample, go to the laboratory, put the sample of the stew into the polarimeter. It turns out that there is no rotation of the polarized light, which means that both of these compounds are present, which means that that muscarine could not have come from the mushroom. It had to have come from a laboratory. 
And indeed, it turns out that that is exactly what happened. Someone got their hands on some synthetic muscarin and poisoned the old gentleman. And of course, it was a story of, of money, as it uh, usually is. So what is the verdict here? Uh, totally possible. The science is extremely well des described, and it is absolutely correct. And uh, it is probably the only time in the history of criminal literature that a criminal was caught by an asymmetric carbon atom and a polarimeter. Ian Fleming. Not exactly detective stories. Ian Fleming, of course, was the creator of one of the greatest heroes in I mean, still, I would call it, you know, mystery of criminal literature. And that, of course, was James Bond. The womanizing, alcohol-drinking, British secret agent, licensed to kill. That's what the O7, of course, uh, uh, stands for. And uh, he's the one who would always have a martini, shaken and not stirred. Sean Connery of course, was James Bond. All the others were actors playing the role of James Bond. The first James Bond uh, story was Dr. No, pretty good, with Ursula Andress. Uh, the second one was uh, From Russia with Love. And the third James Bond uh, uh, film starring Sean Connery was Goldfinger, which to me is... Uh, absolutely the best uh, James Bond movie. It has great characters. Uh, Goldfinger, played by Gert Froby, the, the uh, German actor, was a man who was just infatuated with gold. He just wanted everything uh, gold. And uh, his uh, car was uh, made of gold. His license plate was AU something. AU, of course, is a chemical symbol for, for gold. And his plan was to rob Fort Knox. Fort Knox is the U.S. gold depository. This is where much of the gold that the U.S. owns is stored in under, underground vaults uh, because it used to be that the currency of any country had to be backed up by having an equivalent amount of, of gold which no longer is, is the case, but Fort Knox still exists, and the U.S. still has a large gold supply there. So um, Goldfinger had a plan. He didn't actually want to steal the gold from Fort Knox. It was a bit more clever than that. He had a mini nuclear bomb that he wanted to detonate inside Fort Knox to make the U.S. gold supply radioactive and therefore totally unusable, which would mean that his own gold supply would, of course, increase in value. It doesn't work. James Bond, of course, solves the, the problem, enlisting Pussy Galore's Flying Circus. How they ever got away with that name in those days, in the early 1960s, Pussy Galore's is really quite amazing, but they did get away with this. In any way, uh, she plays a major role in, in, uh, in the story, and uh, Goldfinger's plan, of course, is, uh, is foiled. It's a great movie. Uh, I, I love to see it uh, over and over again. In any case, one of the, the uh, best scenes in, in this movie, except for Shirley Eaton, who was done in by this, is, is, a, is a killing that is carried out with gold paint. When you run afoul of uh, Goldfinger, you end up being painted gold. And this is what happened to Jill Masterton, played by Shirley Eaton. And uh, uh, she ran afoul of Goldfinger. She ends up dead. And the explanation was that she died because she had been painted with this gold paint and her skin could not breathe. Well, does that make any sense that you can die because your skin cannot breathe. Interesting real-life example from Germany. This gentleman had a fight with his girlfriend, and he decided he would show her. He wanted to commit suicide, and he read all about Goldfinger, but he couldn't find any gold paint, so he painted himself blue. 
ended up in the hospital. The only problem they had was getting the blue paint off of him. And uh, they eventually found the solvent. They got the gold paint off, sent him home. He came back a couple of weeks later, again, having tried the same thing. This time they sent for the men in the white coats. And he ended up being you know, examined for, for mental illness. But he survived being painted. However, uh, I cannot totally rule out that something could have happened because uh, you could have an allergic reaction to the paint or to the solvent that is used. So it's not totally outside the realm of possibility that if someone is painted with you know spray paint from head to toe that they can die. But I, I give this one an improbable verdict. The, the notion that you have to breathe through the skin is not a realistic notion. We breathe through our nose and our mouth, not through, through our skin. Finally, another fascinating character in literature, criminal literature, is uh, Rumpole of the Bailey, created by John Mortimer. Rumpole is uh, a lawyer, uh, and uh, uh, sorry, takes place in, in England, so it's all the British uh, uh, court system. Uh, really, really very interesting. And he also solves crimes through power of uh, observation. And uh, one of the really fascinating stories is Rumpole and the Expert Witness. It is a story of, uh, of murder. And of course, most criminal stories uh, are. But in this case, the murder is carried out, believe it or not, with an omelette. How do you kill someone with an omelette? No, it's not a question of overdosing on the cholesterol found in the uh, egg yolk. You cannot overdose on, uh, on cholesterol. This is uh, far more clever than, than that. But indeed, the murder weapon in this case is an omelette. And the murderer is a physician. The victim is, is his wife. It's the classic old story. I mean, if it's not money, then of course it's love. So he does, he's having an affair with a much younger uh, woman uh, for whom he wants to trade in his wife, but it's not a simple thing to do. Uh, so he decides that the easiest way to do this is to eliminate her. But he has to do this in a fashion where he's not going to be suspected in any way. Because he's a physician, he knows quite a bit about pharmacology. And he knows a lot about depression and drugs that are used for depression. His wife is suffering from depression because obviously they don't have a happy relationship. And she does suspect him from philandering. So, of course, she's not feeling very happy. And uh, he offers her uh, a medication. And she takes it. Husband is a physician, he must know. This is a monoamine oxidase inhibitor. It is a medication that is still used today, although quite rarely because there are better antidepressants uh, today. And one of the reasons that monoamine oxidase inhibitors or MAO inhibitors as they are called, is that there is a, a drug food reaction. If you consume this medication with the wrong kinds of foods, you can have an adverse reaction. And uh, the, the classic example is taking this with, with uh, red wine or taking it with uh, cheese, aged cheese. The reason is that those foods contain a chemical called tyramine. So cheese contains a chemical called tyramine. Now, normally, the human body metabolizes this molecule very easily. It's not a problem because we have an enzyme called monoamine oxidase. That's what breaks down this molecule. So no, no issue here. However, if you are on a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, as the name implies, that enzyme is not functioning in the body. And therefore, the tyramine is not going to be broken down. Tyramine is a vasopressor. It can cause high blood pressure. And high blood pressure can lead to a stroke. So what's the story here? 
he starts giving this medication to his wife so she has enough of this in her bloodstream. And then one day, he decides to make her an omelet with some extra aged cheese in it to make sure that there's plenty of tyramine. She consumes the omelet. The tyramine causes her to have extremely high blood pressure because it is not being normally metabolized because the monoamine oxidase enzyme is being inhibited. She has a stroke. She falls down, hits her head, and the police come, and they just think that it was uh, just a question of her, unfortunately, falling and hitting her head. But eventually, Rumpel figures uh, all of this out. Uh, Leo Mortimer is the, the actor who, uh, uh, who plays. Fantastic uh, series. Again, you can, you can get it on... Uh, British TV, you can, I think you can find it, some of, some of the episodes you can find on the BBC website, but also in, uh, uh, sorry, Leo McKern, John Mortimer is the author, Leo McKern is the actor. Uh, if, if you can get BritBox, which is really an outstanding, uh, it's a Netflix equivalent, except that, you know, it's, it's almost essentially all British stuff. And the British do, do things very well. It's not heavy handed as, as the U.S. versions. Even the House of Cards, which was a, the U.S. version was very good. If you can see the British version, it's more elegant. It's, it, it's better. So anyway, um, Rumpel figures uh, it all out and uh, the doctor ends up being uh, convicted. So what is the verdict here? Certainly, it's possible. There have been real-life cases where people have uh, uh, not paid attention to their diet when they were taking monoamine oxidase inhibitors and had an unfortunate reaction of hypertension. Uh, today, if anyone is ever prescribed this medication at the pharmacy, they are given a, a piece of paper, a sheet, uh, depicting exactly what the medication is and what they can and cannot uh, eat. So it's very unlikely that this is, uh, is going to um, uh, happen again, but certainly the, the story is absolutely possible. So I hope I, I've, I've been able to give you, you know, interesting insight in, into some of the the fascinating stories that are out there in in the criminal fiction. Uh, obviously, the the library has a huge selection of these books, and I'm sure that you can get advice on on which ones to to read. Uh, I certainly would recommend starting with Sherlock Holmes. Uh, and then progressing to uh, Agatha Christie and, and Dorothy Sayers. Uh, they are uh, great writers, but of course, there are so, so many and many modern ones as well. But I will leave you with a classic line uh, from Sherlock Holmes, because this is interesting, not only in, in the realm of fiction, but especially for me, it is meaningful in the real world as well. It is a capital mistake to theorize before one has data. Insensibly, one begins to twist facts to suit theories instead of theories to suit facts. And unfortunately, we see this today in the world all the time uh, when people have their minds made up about something and then they try to twist the facts to suit that theory. Whereas in science, of course, you should have an open mind and uh, you take the facts. And based upon the theory, uh, based upon the facts, you come up with uh, with a theory. That's it. Uh, if anyone has any uh, questions, I'll certainly be happy to to uh, try to to answer them. And I would um, urge you to read some of the stories that I mentioned here, uh, even though I revealed some of the plot. But don't worry about that. You will have forgotten that by the time that you read the books. So you'll. Uh, you can get some advice from the library about where to find these books, but I would really suggest starting with uh, Sherlock Holmes. If you have um, uh, questions, comments, etc., you can always find us uh, at, uh, at our website. And I'll uh, remind you that um, you can always go to the website. You will always have some interesting inform information there. And you can also sign up for a weekly newsletter. It's free. And uh, it's informative. I think it's entertaining. It appears every week in your uh, email, e email inbox every Saturday morning exactly at 6 a.m. 
so you can have some interesting weekend uh, reading. Okay, thanks very much for your uh, for your uh, attention, and uh, go out and uh, look into Sherlock Holmes. Thank you, Dr. Schwartz. Have a good day, and uh, see you all next month.